I want to fly like the angel train until I die, then live again. You know, it's real. No, I haven't uh, remembered that until just now. Recorded live at Machine Sound London, this is the Band Before the Band Before podcast, and I'm your host, Chaz Langston. And welcome to episode nine. Cold white wine ain't that fine. There's a little quote there from the genius that is Alan Johnson of Peep Show. If you don't watch Peep Show, well, then... F*** you. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Love you. Uh, You should watch it, though. It's one of the best TV shows ever. So let me tell you about today's guest. Our guest today is from one of Britain's most underrated bands of the early 2000s. And since their breakup in 2008, he's made his own path as a successful solo artist, releasing several EPs and four fantastic full-length albums. During this episode, we find out how he became an award-winning songwriter and an adorsey by Yamaha before he even hit the age of 10. How he ruined a wedding with Green Day covers. How he's a member of a power duo that consisted of only a guitar and a clarinet player. And how Chips funded the making of a cult classic album. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Our guest today on the Band Before the Band Before podcast, episode 9, former Ruben frontman and current frontman of Jamie Lemon. Jamie Lemon! I fucked that up, didn't I? All right. Jamie Lemon in the house. Hello. You bastard lemon. I read the, the lyric. Ba- that's absolutely <laughs> Jamie the oh, no, bastard. Oh, is it bastard? Lemon. No, it's you yeah, arsehole right. lemon. It's arsehole. You arsehole lemon. That's what they say about me on the street. I called you the wrong swear word. Sorry. That's okay. That's all right. Another great breakup song. Is it a breakup song, that yeah. one? No, that's about. No, that's about. Um... For me, it was. <laughs> oh, shit. You, you've broken up with a lot of people. It's that last bit with where you you and I can uh, rest our bones and that. Oh, that's that's true. Yeah. I forgot about post hardcore that it goes in about twenty mm. places in one song. You're right. <laughs> yeah, mm. bless post hardcore. <laughs> All right, dude. So let's go back to the beginning, man. Where were you born? Where's your hometown? Where was I? Well, I was born in uh, Greenwich Hospital, um, at the centre of time. <laughs> from which all minutes and hours span out across the globe. I was exactly on time. None of this daylight savings when I was born. Uh, but uh, but my, because my family were living in Kent at that time, a little place called Erith. But I don't remember it too much because I was two when we moved. When I started remembering stuff, it was when we were in Oxford. We lived in Oxford. And the weirdest, the weirdest thing is... Uh, is that I lived in a place called Abingdon, which is one of the longest continually uh, inhabited places in the UK, if you know what I mean. So that people have been living in Abingdon without a break. And never left. Since fucking, and never, for fucking ages. Other places and maybe like, they started living there uh, longer ago, but then they abandoned it and came back. Whereas Abingdon, there's been people there for like 2,000 years. And, um, but I lived in a little street called in Abingdon. And so weird, my label boss, Kev Douch, has moved to just a couple of years ago he moved to that street so from his house and i've been there he can see my childhood no home way. from his doorstep yeah it's super <laughs> it's super weird Mate. and so every now and then when i get a little bit uh nostalgic or i'm going through oxford i might park up yeah! have a look and then i go and knock on kev's house and see what snacks he's got right. yeah nice that's synergy that is that is synergy <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense yeah 
What about your household? Was it a musical household? My household in particular wasn't a very musical household. My family is weird because uh, my dad's side are all academics. They're all doctors and professors. Oh, wow. My mum's side are all artists. They're all either, you know, uh, my mum does silkscreen painting. She still does. It's called Batik. And so do my aunts, actually. She had a lot of sisters. And... And on their side, they're more musical as well. They play a lot of instruments. No, no one on my dad's side plays instruments apart from the fucking bagpipes. My <laughs> uncle Bruce is a professor of Scottish history, and he's creating all his kids had to learn the bagpipes. Wow! But but on my mother's side, it was just everything. And so when we would go and see, particularly my cousins, um, we would they would just have a room full of instruments. And every Christmas or birthday, everyone would pick up like an instrument, a trombone or a trumpet. Or my cousin Matthew, my older cousin Matthew, had a drum kit. And everyone just have a go, which was great. We didn't do it so much in my house, but definitely when we went to see Auntie Christine and my cousins, it was a musical extravaganza. And their grandpa, who wasn't my grandpa, he played the violin. They all they all had a musical bone in them. Weirdly enough, my dad was very good at violin when he was at university, but he, but he gave it up and um, he concentrated on the academics. So there was right. a thread there. And my first guitar I ever played had belonged to my mother. So on my mother's side, very much the music. On my dad's side, not so much. And in my house... Just me. My sister struggled with the piano because my parents thought it was a good idea. My brother had a go on the trumpet and then the saxophone for a little while, but it never really took on. It was it was only when I found the guitar that uh, it became a musical household, and that was just from me. Long answer. No, this, this is going to take no, some time. I'm sorry, no, buddy. This is all good. <laughs> so how did you how did you end up getting a guitar for yourself? This is it something that you asked for. God, I begged and yeah. begged and begged for an electric guitar. I just wanted an electric guitar. My parents, you know, my family were um, sort of, you know, classic middle class, very comfy upbringing. And we had money. My dad had some good jobs, you know, but we never, I was never the kid in school that had all the new stuff, right? Right. So we had money, but it was always in like the house or my dad would spend all of the extra money he had on like extravagant ski holidays, which, you know... A very sounds very posh to go skiing for your family holiday instead of to Butlins, but I didn't appreciate it at the time because I fucking you know I wanted to go to Butlins. You know, as a kid, I didn't want to I didn't want to go to the fucking Alps and have to slide down a mountain of ice. So that's where all our money went. So so in the house there wasn't a lot of money floating around, and I couldn't just you know like most kids I couldn't just ask for a thing and instantly get it. Yeah, whereas a lot of the kids in my school would sort of just get the thing get they wanted. A little bit spoiled. So, but mainly that was good because it meant that, you know, if I really wanted something, they had to be make sure that I that I really wanted it. And I would just go on and on about an electric guitar. I had to make do with my mum's big classical Spanish guitar, the only guitar in the house. Right. For years and years and years until they, in fact, they never, they never did buy me a guitar because I won it. I won my oh, first. Really? Yeah, I won my first guitar in a songwriting competition. So they didn't have to stump up. <laughs> wow! But I think my dad then relented and bought me a small amplifier. So that was his contribution. Okay. When I'd won the guitar, he was like, "Oh, fair enough. You're going to stick at this. You can have an amplifier." So yeah. Wow. Okay. So let's let's rewind a little bit here. Yeah. So you had a guitar in the house with your mum's guitar. Yeah. So were you taking lessons or are you self-taught? Yeah, there was an after-school group um, at my school run by a guy called Roger H. Vaness. 
he was amazing. He was this big, like old, gangly old guy. He looked, he had like a beetle haircut, but it was shock white. He had a face like a baked potato, real character. You know, I wish, <laughs> wish I had some photos of him. He was amazing. And he would just run this after school group uh, with like 20 fucking kids with these cheap acoustic guitars. And he used to, you know, we all learned the basic chord shapes and we would strum along sort of like hymns and old classic songs. And he had this amazing thing where he would shout out the next chord so everyone could change chord. Right. But in doing so, he would add like a bar of one onto all songs. Okay. So it'd be like, we used to do a song called The Bosom of Abraham, and I can't hear it without his chords in it. So his version would be like, I'm going to rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. D, rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. A, and it always had that little extra bar to change the chord. Right, and all, got the, all the songs we did had this extra beat on the end of every four bars to change the <laughs> chord. And just 20 kids just strumming away. It sounded awful, but it was so much fun uh, yeah. on my acoustic guitar. And then later when I, I, I got a little bit interested in, you know, I wanted to shred. I wanted to be like Ingvi Malmsteen right. and uh, fucking um, well, Brian May and all those cats. I then went to one-on-one guitar lessons with a guy closer to where i lived so i sort of broke away from the school group a bit and then i started still on this like classical spanish guitar learning slightly more technique but as soon as i learned the bar chord that was all over because i was learning scales and i was learning all this bullshit that i wasn't interested in and all these fucking john lee hooker blues licks fuck off and then i (laughs) learned the bar chord and i was like oh shit i could do fucking anything with this thing (laughs) the same shape all up and down the guitar and that was the end of my guitar education the bar chord i never looked back and uh and so that's how i wrote my songs and that's how i uh won the guitar yeah Wow, so you were writing songs yourself from quite a young age then? From the very start, from the first three chords. From the very start? From the first three chords I learned, maybe even the first two chords I learned, I wrote a song because that was always my goal. I wasn't interested in playing other people's songs. And, and these days, I know I put out that um, terribly received covers album, but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not too interested in playing other people's songs. People like um, Frank Turner, you know, I, I once did a, I did a busk off with Frank Turner, right? Right. And we, they, the, it was for a magazine feature and they put us at opposite ends of some town, I think it was Tunbridge Wells, to see who could earn the most money by busking at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, <laughs> he had like 50 pounds in loose change and I had a button and a chew it <laughs> because, he, because he's just got this kind of brain that he just soaks up other material. You play him a song, he could play it back and he could sing it better than the original, you know, whereas all I knew were my songs. So right. there's Frank singing like Abba's greatest hits. People are... <laughs> chucking notes at him and there's me playing like an acoustic version of uh, missing fingers and it didn't go to so i've i've never been able to to play other people's songs i wasn't that interested as soon as i had the, the basic building blocks i was writing my own songs and i never stopped that's incredible yeah mate well firstly he cheated <laughs> and secondly chew it's lovely well so, fair enough he didn't get no i think it, so you've you won go. yeah I, me too <laughs> Uh, maybe I shared it with him, you know. It's very honourable. Yeah. Four, two, three, four. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, sorry, sorry. Can you remember like any early song titles or anything like I that? Can you can you them. remember the first song that you wrote? Yeah, and I played it at an in-store a couple of years ago, and it went down. No way. Yeah, I did. It was called Sweet Vanessa. Sweet <laughs> and Vanessa. It, and it had, uh, I think it had three chords in it. 
and it was yep. very influenced by um my parents would play compilation cds 60s compilation cds so all the hits of the 60s apart from the beatles because we don't have the rights but then they played the beatles as well and the searchers the searchers were a big i say influence this was all the music i really had so my first few songs were very sort of 1960s lovey-dovey pains to beautiful women you know and sweet vanessa was the absolute <laughs> yeah uh but sweet you know for vanessa. a kid of like what eight or whatever it's probably Could quite impressive eight. yeah that I is think. very impressive like just the name alone that sounds like a sounds like a 60s classic i'm gonna record it and put it on some, my next record yeah i was gonna say do you remember the lyrics but you obviously do if you're still playing it live yeah sweet vanessa please don't leave me now because i will be so lonely you know it, was, <laughs> it wasn't so bad that's, yeah that's fucking good it was okay yeah Wow. Mm. Do you remember any like uh, songs later on down the road when you were getting a bit more teenage angst-esque and writing those sort of songs? Was it like, I hate you, Vanessa, or anything <laughs> like that? <laughs> no, well, because I, was, because I was writing songs, if you think, when do you really start to become a teenager? You know, mm. really only around really 13, you know, I didn't really have yeah. much angst. Although I did, you know, I did get bullied and stuff. I had a, a tough time uh, growing up. Uh, because I was like a nerd and I was, wasn't was sporty at all. But I, it didn't really translate into angst. I was just like, I sort of managed to brush it off. I had some good buddies to help me get through it. And so my general mood, you know, those first few years, let's say the, the first five years of my songwriting career, I was sort of happy. The, the guitar was my happy place. So all right. the songs I was sort of happy or lovey or jokey. I had a great punk number called I Hate Puffed Rice about how I didn't like... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, food articles that used uh, puffed rice <laughs> they were all sort of silly like that um and it was only when i got to 13 that i started writing angsty stuff you know i think yeah. i had a song called um mary whitehouse which is so it tells you the kind of world i lived in because i wasn't really connected with uh, popular culture because by that time i'd really fallen into doctor who which is weird because it wasn't on the right. telly and Mary Whitehouse was um, the chairman of the National Viewers and Listeners Association. She was she formed a group of old ladies who were protesting against violence and sex on television. And she right. she tried to get Doctor Who shut down a few times in the seventies. So for me, <laughs> this was current affairs. <laughs> wow. Right. So that was the edge of my political songwriting. I wrote a song uh, protesting back against Mary Whitehouse's attempts to get Doctor Who shut down. I was a very weird kid, and it's no wonder I was unpopular. <laughs> oh, man, that's cool. That's better than fucking kicking Coke cans around and, like, yeah, I didn't do, playing Knockdown Ginger. I didn't do Ginger. so much of that. That's true. Yeah, I was too slow to play Knockdown Ginger. They get me straight away. <laughs> you know yeah. me both. I always got caught. <laughs> Absolutely. I was still on the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, none of that. So um, your first electric guitar, you won that. What, yeah. what, what make and model was it? Oh, man, it was a Yamaha. And there's some confusion about this because I've tried because I've been endorsed by Yamaha. Right. For 20 years now. Yeah, you're a Pacifica guy, right? That's right. That's right. And I yeah. well, no, it's more like an RGX, although now they've got me playing the Rev style, which I really like. But for years, it was an RGX. And I swear that the guitar they gave me in 1993 uh, on my 11th birthday was... It was called a Pacifica, I swear to God. 
but it more closely resembles what they now say is an RGX. And so, okay. and I've never, I've been trying to find a, a duplicate guitar for years, and I haven't been able to. The closest I can get is the RGX. And the RGX is basically, it's great, it's the guitar I play. And I probably wouldn't play the guitar they call a Pacifica now. It's not quite as close to the RGX. Having said that, they've given me these beautiful guitars, Rev Stars, which I now play. I just play whatever anyone gives me. But through yeah. the last 20 years, the first thing I say whenever Yamaha comes to hand is like, have you found one of those old guitars for me, please? And they're like, still no luck, man. And I know that and I met the, the head of Yamaha in Europe, German guy. He he had said, look, we've asked, we've called Japan and asked them if they have any in like the bottom of the stockroom and they just don't have it. So even the guys can't find it for me, this replica guitar. Wow, they're that rare. I guess, you know, it's sort of an entry level guitar but just really well made and a lot of stuff a lot of the stuff i play a lot of my gear is actually is sort of entry level stuff that's really is intended for kids playing in their bedroom but if you make it if you make it well then it it, you know it's it stands up so yeah my first one was absolutely pacifica rgx beautiful beautiful did you say 93 you you were endorsed by yamaha and then well I mean, technically, technically speaking, I was endorsed because the songwriting competition that I won was sponsored, was hosted by Yamaha. So it was Yamaha's songwriter, young songwriter of the year competition, 93 or whatever, um, in conjunction, I think, with the Times Educational Supplement. And, and so the prize, there were three age groups and the two older age categories, they just got a grand going to give this kid right. a grand of money of coins which are amazing but because i was only in the youngest age group i think the eight to ten yeah i would have been ten at this time um they gave the money to the school in in vouchers so you didn't get a fucking check like the other guys right. your school got a grand's worth of vouchers which i thought was a bit of a swizz and it i always felt like there was a bit of an intimation there that they were kind of saying well we know it's really it's the music teacher that's written this song hasn't it the kids are just dummies oh really i, I felt like they, they were doubted sort of, you i thought they were suggesting perhaps that we hadn't written our own songs so i was a little bit affronted by that plus i was pissed i didn't get a grand <laughs> yeah and i just think like what would i have spent a thousand pounds on when i was 10 and the answer is wwf wrestling figures <laughs> a, a whole load of pogs uh, which is funny enough exactly what i would spend it on today so it doesn't matter <laughs> but the school as well as kitting out the school music department with like bare keyboards and all this great shit they spent maybe like one tenth ten percent of these vouchers on a guitar for me they were like oh we better give the kids something so <laughs> they right. they got me a guitar through the vouchers and they gave it to me in assembly on by then by the time the vouchers came through it was my 11th birthday it was beautiful and i i was not um unhappy about it because i love this guitar and i'd been begging for one my folks wouldn't buy me one so i had to fucking win it you know yeah did you get to take it home or did it like belong to the school essentially no, god can you imagine that if i could only play it <laughs> at school no i got to take it home it was it okay, was the great. only bit of it that was mine the keyboards i never saw again fuck right yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What's the name of the song that won the uh, won the competition? It's called "You Love Me Best." And at some time, <laughs> do you know what? When the release schedule gets thin, I'm going to have to do a recording of all these old songs from when I was eight to to ten because they some of them hold up. "You Love Me Best" was this like blues number because I'd learned the bar chords right, and my right. new guitar teacher was teaching me the, the blues 
because I said, look, I want to shred like Brian May. And he was like, okay, you got to go back through all the licks, John Lee Hooker, all these guys. And and so I got into the, the blues and then the bar, co- the bar chord to play the blues. I was like, you know what? Hold it. We could stop right here. But with the bar, the blues is so easy. You don't need to think of a song structure. You just need to play A, E, B7, and then back to E mm-hmm. and, and put some lyrics about something you bummed out about. So I wrote this like rocking song called you love me best come on honey ring my bell it was so (laughs) it was sort of late 80s rock by way of blues and they took me i recorded it on tape with sweet vanessa i i submitted them both oh wow double a side double a side (laughs) (laughs) and they went for you love me best and they were like oh you won this comp or they sort of said um we're not saying you've won but maybe come to studio and practice with the real band so i went to london to olympia with my mom and my fucking spanish classical guitar to meet a real session band a real session band of with like two backing vocalists and a lead guitarist and they were louder than i'd never even seen a real band play live and here i was in a rehearsal room with them this like goofy kid with teeth out here i still got them (laughs) and uh and they played this version. They were like, okay, we played your song. It basically goes like this. And they'd done this like pro version of my song. And it oh, blew wow. my fucking mind. And what an like, incredible experience. Oh, That's it was fucking great. Just nuts. And I went up and I sang. And they were like, yeah, that'll do. And they had the singers like, doo-ba-ba-doo-ba in the background. <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy. Mate, was and already an award-winning song. So if you do bring that back, <laughs> technically, it's already an award-winning it song. It did win an award. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. That's incredible, yeah. man. My first and last award. Okay, man, we've already touched a little bit on, but what, what were the first bands that sort of influenced you? I guess... Um, so we we talked about my you know my parents would listen to that 60s uh stuff it, the beatles you know was there from right from the start i spent mm-hmm. um we had a weird summer where we moved houses but you know sometimes like you sell your house and the house you're moving in ain't ready <laughs> so we were sort yep. of homeless for about six months you know in not in any sense the word homeless but we didn't have anywhere that we lived and my again my auntie christine that musical family they went on they went on like a two month holiday to Greece and so they're like why don't you just live in our house for two months while the school summer holidays were on which was fucking great and so we just kicked around in my auntie's huge house for the summer and I can't remember if I stole it from my uncle but he made me a tape or I'd stole a tape that was on one side was revolver on the other side was rubber sole and I just came this tape all summer around the age of like you know eight or nine and so the Beatles was the bedrock Without right. and I didn't even realize they were an influence, but they were just always there. And then later, when I found Queen on my own terms, um, you know, Queen didn't come from my folks, although they were still happy to play it in the car because everyone loves Queen, and yeah. my mum in particular loved Queen. When the Wayne's World film came out with Bo Rap in it, and Bo Rap went to number one, I was yep. like, "What's this? This is fucking yep. amazing!" But also, I didn't realize it, but it had a nice through line to the Beatles because they're both very much influenced by uh, British Music Hall and, you know, they're rock bands, but they have um, a, a theatrical quality to them and they play Absolutely. 20 different types yeah. of music on the same record. So Queen was a very easy step to make and they were, but they were like way more bombastic than the Beatles, obviously, because they were 10 years, years on, production techniques, uh, Brian with those huge amps, you know. And so that was really what I was like, 
oh, this has got to be, this is my fucking thing. So, yeah, my first influences were, were Beatles when I was very small and then around 10 or 11, Queen. And it sort of stayed that way. It was a kind of a closed group and the only new music I heard, new music, was the music that my guitar teacher would, uh, he would do me tapes of stuff I should listen to to try and get my all with a view to getting my um, solo chops up. So they would tend to be bands with big solos, you know, late 80s bands. He made me a tape of Slippery When Wet, you know, Bon Jovi. Yep. And he made me a tape of Kill em All as well. Yeah. Because of Kirk's amazing playing. So a lot of sort of maybe hair metal, let's say late 80s hard rock um, through my guitar teacher before I was a teenager, before I was exposed to um, MTV or Kerrang! Uh, or, or, or Radio 1. I just got it all from my teacher. And then when I became a teenager, I met other teenagers. There was not a lot of rock going on at my school. And right. if you did like come to school in a denim jacket, you'd probably get your head kicked in. Even though it yep. wasn't a rough school at all, um, they would still give you a kick in <laughs> if you had a Black Sabbath patch on your back. And so um, in the very limited pool of other teenagers that I knew that liked rock and roll, then you would start swapping and then that was the sort of post-grunge pop-punk thing nirvana had had just stopped you know kurt had just died i only sort of got into the scene just after kurt had died and Mm -hmm. and and so then we had like green day and all those great bands and like bush you know i was never really into bush but they they're a part of that scene and Mm -hmm. silver chair that's when i really entered it so so when I was a kid, it was the Beatles. When I was sort of pre-teens, it was Queen and all these 80 bands. And then finally, when I was a teenager, I really immersed myself in that sort of post-grunge pop-punk thing. What's the first riff where you thought, I have to learn this? Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, really? For sure. Yeah. I remember one of my, uh, one of my good buddies, a guy called Richard Bonney, a little bit older than me, um, he, he played me Smells Like Teen Spirit. Smells Like Teen Spirit. I just could not believe i couldn't believe it and it was you know it was three two or three years old by then i was just like oh my god and i i probably even found it a little bit difficult to get my head around but yeah i mean it's an easy riff to learn um but yeah just you know once i played that it was great and obviously we played it in our fucking shitty school band it sounded terrible and no one could get the swag you know it's it's like when song two came out and no one could work out how to play that fucking drum beat (laughs) yeah And everyone would just play it. And it's such a simple song, but no one could play it because you need the swag. And it's the same with mm. Smells Like Teen Spirit. You can have it written down. You can have all the parts, but you just need to get that vibe. You'd hear those drummers. They play it with like twice as many hi-hats because that's how they learn. They go, you'd be like, come on, man. Look at Dave. He's playing four. He's swinging. And everyone else is, yeah. Absolutely. Like jolting. You've just yeah, got to totally. get that swag. It just sounded terrible, but we loved and it. And that flam intro oh is still got to be one of the... I mean, that intro's got to be in the top five greatest intros of all it's time. It's the intro, isn't it? It's amazing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Man, it's so powerful. You hear all those um, uh, Ruben songs, especially on records like uh, Race Car. Almost every other one has got some kind of flam intro <laughs> trying to write the next huge flam intro like that's that's one of them isn't it you know all of them would start with a fucking flam intro do you know that's the that only ghost. person who's really done it since who dave Grohl himself with queens of the stone age yes Yes. You know, that guy, if that guy gets on a drum kit, magic happens. Have you seen him playing the Tiny Kids one? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. But he still sounds great. Oh, he's the A friend of mine sampled that. I won't oh, wow. say because I think no. I might have used okay, it. Okay, all right. <laughs> so who are the main influences for you guitar-wise, would you say? I know we've touched Brian May. Yeah, but then, you know, because I wasn't good enough to play all his... Oh, I'm sure that's not true. But <laughs> at, So at the time, yeah, it, it was Kurt, you know, and I really liked his his sort of deconstruction, you know, of the guitar solo, that he would just play the melody line or just yeah. some weird squonks awesome and that noise, was good yeah. enough. And I was like, cool. Mm-hmm. Later on... Um, uh, when we were sort of in the band days, uh, my um, inspirations for guitar were people like Ian from Billy Talent. Oh, who, right. Who, you know, I'm you happy You talked to... with those guys, didn't you? Sure, yeah, about a bunch. Happy to count him as a as a friend. And Simon from Biffy as well, another close yeah. friend. Uh, I just love the way that both those guys use the guitar. And you can tell when people sing along to the guitar solo, yeah, that is right. a good guitar solo, you know, written melodically. If you go to the Billy Talent show, in fact, I went to a Billy Talent show a few weeks ago and Ian's guitar cut out and everyone sang the guitar part. Instead, they wow. just played the song with the crowd singing it. And that's wow. so strong. And the same with Simon when we would tour with Biffy or whenever I go and see Biffy, everyone sings the guitar part. And you're like, yeah. fuck, man. So that's got to be the measure of how to use the guitar or even do a solo well and for years i sort of rejected the idea of playing solos but those guys made it cool again ian and simon yeah Yeah. do you think that playing an instrument and being a songwriter that gave you a purpose shit you what that's quite deep no but you absolutely did 100 percent. yeah it was my it was my entire purpose it was yeah uh, it was the only thing I had. And when I say, like, it was the only thing I had, I, I want to reiterate that I had an incredibly privileged upbringing, mm-hmm. you know, as, like, the 1% of the 1%. You know, I had, I had everything for me. No uh, problems at home. I never really wanted for anything other than that fucking electric guitar, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't have a lot um, outside of that. So I had everything I needed materially, but, you know, like what you said before, I was a kind of a lonely kid and I only ever had like a few buddies at one time. I'm very unpopular at school. Really one of the, um, not the nerdy kids, not even the nerdy kids. You know, I didn't even belong to it. Everyone says these days they're, oh, I was the in-betweener. But like, you know, I really mm-hmm. was. Didn't yeah. fit into any of the, get- with the rockers. We were despised yeah. and we would get like physically attacked just for listening to grunge. So, yeah, I didn't have a lot. Um and I did, yeah, guitar gave me a purpose. It was the, it was just always what I did, as well as, mm, as well as illustration, which is the other half of my life. And, and at various times when I've sort of put music to bed a bit, I had a period after the band finished where I didn't make any music for oh, a couple of years. All I did was illustration. So the other half of my life is illustration. And in fact, I've been illustrating drawing for longer than I've been playing the guitar. So those... Having said music was my 100% purpose, that's not strictly true. I had, I had two things to which I clung to, one of which was cartoons and the other one was um, music. And through both those things, you know, they gave, you, they gave you stuff to do. You know, what are you going to do for fucking an hour when everyone else is playing football or in the yeah. chess club? 
you go and draw cartoons or go to the music room and, and practice the drums or practice the guitar. You know, it gave me stuff to do and, uh, yeah, and a way to feel good about yourself when everyone was uh, kicking you and calling you a dick, <laughs> yeah. throwing muddy stones at you. I, I paint a bleak picture and I don't, I don't feel sorry for myself at all, but it was tough. School was fucking shit. Yeah. And school is still so shit for so many kids. I, I think I think generally it's a bad system. They should probably get rid of it. But um, that was how I survived was music and illustration. Yeah. It was a mistake, just a bit of fun. When I saw your face, I knew what you'd done. Now you're standing here after all this time. Send the punishment. Doesn't fit the crime. Let's have a little talk about fashion. <laughs> have you got any uh obviously you are one of the most suavest gentlemen in music at present wow but have you made any uh faux pas growing up as a kid yeah um there was a thing there was um and maybe it was all over the uk the rock kids in my school because there was only there was three rock kids in my year and there were a few more in in the year above but you weren't sort of supposed to hang out in between years Mm. It was really weird. It was like marrying outside your religion. You weren't supposed to do it. <laughs> the teachers tried to keep us apart. And we were like, dude, these are the only other people that have heard of the offspring. Give us a break. And, uh, but they had a little dress code, which was everyone used to wear these army surplus um, shirts, like the green khaki shirts. Right. With, maybe yeah. with the German flag on the shoulder. Yeah. That yeah, was like the, the grunge well. dress code. But it was only, weirdly, it was only the girls that were supposed to wear them. And I just thought yeah? they looked so... Yeah, I don't know why that was. I didn't know that was a rule. Maybe just to ask school. Stupid. But then I started wearing... I was like, hey, they look fucking sick. I'm going to wear them. And I was like an iconoclast. We were like, no way. <laughs> Gender bending. Lenman, where's the girl's shirt? But then been, been a lot of those bands at the time, um, there was a lot of... There was a lot of um, you know, wearing traditionally female clothes if you were a male or, or the other way around, you'd see that headbangers ball with Kurt wearing the ball gown. There mm-hmm. was, and he, he he wore dresses at the Hollywood Bowl and he wore a little um, yeah. dress and I was like, dude, that's so fucking cool. And so it was great to have that on in the mix as well. So I used to wear like, you know, tights, stripy tights, the whole goth thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I used to wear like, I used to make the band because the band was in so many weird versions before it became Ruben. But John Pierce, the bass player, was in most of them. John was there from right the start. Right. So we used to do gigs and I'd be like, right, John, you've got to wear like a tailcoat, but a leather mini skirt. And he was like, cool. And like a Spice Girls top, like a crop top. And we just did, you know, and I wore like, you know, shorts, cut off shorts with these stripy tights. So we really tried everything. And I guess they were all faux pas. But then what is a faux pas? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't have worn it to a wedding. Uh, but we did. <laughs> we played um, an Iranian wedding. One of our first gigs was... In a, did you really? It was, it was a Farsi wedding. Yeah. And uh, we went down very badly indeed. How did you get that gig? <laughs> because... That never worked with your booking agent, mate. No, because <laughs> we, we were so young. We knew uh, one of our friends, her pop... Uh, was a guy called Jamal Mosafar. He ran like the the pizza takeaway place on the estate where our school was. So he was already like a local legend. And his kids, his two daughters, Sahar and Sarah, were big time goths. So we used to hang out with right. them and we listened to like Typo and Piston and all this stuff. 
and and he thought our band was great and he's like hey i'm gonna manage your band and we were like wow and because he was like an adult <laughs> he didn't know a fucking thing about music he just liked us and he liked our music he's like i get you a gig you come play my friend's wedding <laughs> for the uh, you know the, the persian community in in camberley it was quite small you know and right. and and so he got hold of I mean, God damn it, the lies he must have spun them. You know, they were arranging this wedding, the big deal, a Persian wedding. And he said, I've got a band. Don't yeah. worry about a band. I've got a band they could play. And they probably weren't like a Persian band, you know, or at least someone to do some covers of some soul classics. Instead, they got these like five 14 year olds in like stripy tights playing um, <laughs> Green Day covers. And they pulled us off after three tunes. They hated us. We wrecked the wedding. And we were so cosseted. They had all this beautiful um, Persian food that we weren't used to because we only knew, like, you know, beige. The beige banquet was brought yeah. up, British kids. And <laughs> so I think the only thing we ate, they were like, you can eat as much food as you like. We were like, what's this? We didn't know what anything was. We ate um, white rice sandwiches and white bread. That's how oh, <laughs> colloquial we were. <laughs> we were so terrified of all this delicious food, too scared to try it out. So that was a real, that was a trial of by fire. Yeah, God bless him. Sorry for ruining your wedding. Let's go back. What was the name of your first band that you were in that you can remember? Well, the first band I was in was a duo called Sheer Power. And that would have been when I was nine, sort of 1990-ish time eight or nine with a kid from school called chris hawes who was also very keen on wrestling we bonded over wrestling just like you and i have he had an electric guitar and i didn't have an electric guitar so i was like you got to be in my band and he was like yeah fair enough and we did like two songs we did um bow rap obviously <laughs> which neither of us could really play or sing and we did uh everything i hate about you by ugly kid joe tune and i met this the singer of uh, Ugly Kid Joe, what was his name? Uh, Whitfield Crane. Whitfield Crane. I met yeah. him a couple of years ago because he did a solo tour with the guys from Haggard Cat and his band. And Haggard Cat were like, hey, do you want to come see Whitfield Crane's gig? We'll put you on the list. I was like, yeah, why not, man? And I met the dude and he was so lovely, so nice. And I, I spared him the story of how, you know, my first band ever played uh, everything, you know, I, or, what is it called? Everything about you. It's, it's everything called everything about, I, yeah. everything about you, right? I, yeah. I spared him that story because he must get it everywhere he goes. Right. But, you know, it was a it was a big moment for me to to meet the guy that you know, in part inspired me to start playing. I left them out of my influences, but I mean, that tune was big for the kids. Yeah. So yeah, sheer power. Two kids, neither of whom could really play. Me on vocals, Chris on guitar, and we played two songs. And our only gig was at my parents' barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> But that counts. That counts. That does count. And then that I think we split count. up after that. So, I mean, I know you couldn't really call that a band, but it, it was very much a band to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That counts. Yeah. Absolutely, that counts. Great name as well. Fucking Sheer hell. power. Our logo was a skull with, instead of two bones, it was a keyboard and a guitar, obviously. Sheer power. Love it. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Yeah. And uh, were you singing because he had a guitar and you didn't well i want at that point i wanted to be freddie mercury right but i also quite wanted to be brian may and it couldn't be i couldn't be both and he had the guitar yes yeah. so it was just it was necessity and i also i found it quite difficult to sing and play so it was easy for me to see i mean he couldn't sing i didn't want to sing and that was it just the one gig but it meant a lot to us what other bands were you in growing up? Can you remember any band names? Oh, or? the bands I was in. Well, this is the thing. I was only in, in really ever in 
three bands that were my band. I might have like dipped or did a little side journey along the way to someone else. But but the, the bands in terms of like me as the singer songwriter, what I wanted to do, where I was focused. There were three bands. There was um, there was Sheer Power. Uh, there was another band in the middle that I'll tell you about in the middle. And, and then there was the band that sort of became Ruben. So w- when I was 12, maybe, is when Ruben really started. And an all it went through so many different per- permutations and personnel changes. But what Ruben became all links back to this um, rudimentary band that I was in when I was 12. But there was a little in-between band which you're gonna love this man <laughs> i think it was the only ever duo where the lineup was vocals and guitar one guy and then the other guy plays clarinet that was wow <laughs> okay i'm in <laughs> because that was all we had that was all we had right. because again we were still kids by this time i had my own guitar and i needed to form a band with someone and Chris uh, had sort of disappeared off the map. Ship Hour had broken up. And the <laughs> only other guy I knew in the world who played an instrument was this guy called Chris Trussler, who was uh, the older brother of one of my younger brother's pals. You know, sometimes that happens. It's quite nice when yep. you know. Yep. And uh, he played the clarinet. And I was like, good enough, man. Let's start a band. <laughs> <laughs> and so we started a band called AstroTurf. And nice. we had like a lot of songs for electric guitar and clarinet and he had like yeah. clarinet lines that he would write i'd play him i'd be like i've got this sick track and he's like cool let's work with it <laughs> he would play clarinet mate and it, that's you know, amazing they were real there was one called fly that was our big hit fly yeah. i want to fly like the angel train until i die then live again <laughs> you know it was real no i haven't uh remembered that until just now and he had like like clarinet line really great so that was astroturf i don't think astroturf ever actually played a gig no so were they a real band they were real they were a real band to us mate you robbed the world that probably quite thankfully (laughs) but then after i think chris moved to like a big boy school and i was still in like middle school looking for someone to play with because, you know, number one, there's no rockers around. And number two, you don't have any buddies anyway. And none of the buddies I had played instruments. I, and I would say, I had like a couple of really cool little pals. And I would say to them, do you want to like maybe start the drums and <laughs> play the bass? And they were like, yeah, nah. I'm just going to uh, continue playing Monster in my pocket. And so <laughs> I, I couldn't uh, get anyone interested, which is why the clarinet lineup. So it was a long time later that I finally started like a band with drums and even that took so long and, and me and John were just piddling around for so long before we found a, a, a drummer and that just went through so many variations so there was, only, there was only really three outfits there was those two two duos of Sheer Power and AstroTurf and then it was um, basically Ruben under like 20 different names and 20 different lineups oh really? yeah can I ask what some of the old names were? You don't have to tell me if you don't want to. No, if you want to, I can remember fucking all of them because, you know, because also because I was an illustrator and, you know, a budding graphic designer, as it were, as soon as we thought of the name, they had a logo. Right. And they had an album cover, you know. (laughs) Yeah. So there was a lineup of me and John Pierce on the bass who I met 
because he had the same guitar teacher as me. Kid called Richard Bonney on second guitar, lead guitar, really. And a guy called Graham McNeil, who answered an ad, I think. And we were called Vodka Lily. Vodka yeah, Lily. Because it was like cool alcohol, but also a flower like guns. It was like <laughs> Guns N' Roses Vodka Lily. I don't know. That stuck around for quite, for quite a while. Um, and then we got we got a different a, a different drummer guy called Paul Brady who was like a lot older than us. So John was one year older than me at school, which is quite impressive. And also a little bit against the law, you know. I had to go to like a different building to tell him it was band practice at lunchtime, you know. <laughs> and but then um, when Graham McNeil, I think we I think we kicked out Graham McNeil without telling him, which was pretty. Sorry, Graham, bad. if you're listening. <laughs> Sorry, Well, I've spoken to him about it. So he was so upset and he had every right to be. But we were just kids, man. He found out he wasn't in the band when he saw a poster. We did a really bad gig at like a bonfire night. Yeah. He saw the poster for the gig and he called me. It was like, have you got a new drummer? And I was like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> oh, bless him. <laughs> oh, God damn it. I've actually bumped into him a few times since he's a sweet guy. And I hope he's forgiven me for being such a coward. Um but yeah, we got a, a guy called Paul Brady. He was he was eighteen and he had a car. Right. He was like a real grown up. And, okay, I and get so it. Then he joined for a bit, and it was still Vodka Lily that played that bonfire night where there was like a huge fight because, like I say again, in our school and in our culture in the nineties, everyone's got this idea of the nineties has been like you know the rock decade with grunge and pop punk. But the reality that may be like that in America and Australia. Yeah, good on you. <laughs> Uh, but in Britain, fucking hell, it was a war zone. And you would get... We, I got smacked about more often than I can tell you. And I don't know what we were thinking, playing a bunch of, you know, hard rock covers at a bonfire for basically our school friends, the whole school, all of whom were into, like, happy hardcore right. and hated us. What did we think was going to happen? Give these guys alcohol and then play... You know, it smells like Tin Spirit three times in a row. We nearly got our fucking heads cracked, man, at that gig. So it was pretty brutal, even for like a, a posh part of Britain, which the home counties is. Make no mistake, it is the poshest of the posh. Even within that little pocket, it could get brutal. We were only like 13. Yeah. Get smacked down at these shows. <laughs> Physically punished for doing it. So that So that was still Vodka Lily. And then when Richard left... I had to fire Richard. He was my best friend and I had to fire him because his, cause his, um, I think there was some question as to whether his priority, I think he missed like a band practice to play Nintendo instead and we were like, right, he's out. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, you can't be having that. So I had to fire him. It's fucking one of the hardest things I ever did. We got a new guitarist called Nathan from, again, from school and we got a keyboard player called Matthew and then we changed our name to Spindra, which was a very bad name. <laughs> Spindra. Spindra. Like Where did that come oh, from then? I don't fucking know. All these stupid ideas for band names. And sounds like a Thundercat sounds, character. Hey, now you're talking. Now that, <laughs> that could have been quite clever. Tigra, yeah. Band, band, call your band Panthro. But um, that was essentially a different band, but still kind of the same, you know, because me and John, and we were sort of moving through it. And we had a keyboard and things got a bit more um, complex. So that was kind of Spindra. And then when... Um, Paul left to go to university and then Nathan kind of dropped off and then Matthew and it was just me and John and he you know to his credit he stuck around we were thick as thieves back then you know he lives in Manchester now or just below Manchester I don't really get to see him um, every now and then it's great but you know we were a two-man gang 
me and John. Yeah. And we had, we didn't give a shit that we didn't have a drum anymore because we were so into it and we would just practice his bass and my guitar in my shed. And I had a drum machine and we would, it was quite a creative period while we were desperately trying to find another drummer. And then finally, when we did, we got Jason, who was also at our school, who went on to produce Racecar. The guy that produced Racecar was also our first, our first. He was our first drummer when we became the three-piece. Right. What you could recognize as Ruben. If you saw a photo, maybe if it's on stage or at a gig, you'd be like, oh, it looks like a really old gotcha. photo of Ruben because it was three guys, me and John. Yeah. This is the birth. With the a drummer. Birth almost really although i sort of trace it back to those earlier versions because john was sort of in him you know yeah me and john of course yeah yeah Yeah. how much did your sound develop over time was you like not nothing like you ended up being at the beginning well it depends on what we ended up being i always it's always funny to hear other people's ideas of what they think ruben sounded like and and sometimes people will play a song and be like oh my god sounds just like ruben i'm like does it fuck you know <laughs> i always thought of ruben as primarily a post-hardcore band mm-hmm. i.e you know a band with like long songs um that didn't repeat too much that went on like crazy journeys with pretentious titles <laughs> like 10 words <laughs> you know now is the time of our becoming you know all this crap but i think other people sort of connected much more with stuff like a kick in the mouth or um freddy krueger the simpler stuff the sort of grungy stuff mm-hmm. so we sat in a weird place between sort of a pop punk grunge thing and the more post-hardcore so in terms of how our sound developed at by the point it was just me and john we really were looking straight ahead at nirvana we they were just like an idol we had a picture of them on the wall John used to play his bass with two straps, just like Chris, even though he didn't need right. to because he was a normal-sized human and Chris is the giant, <laughs> you know, uh, it, even to the point where we, we and we still, Ruben always uh, set ourselves up the wrong way on stage because Kurt was left-handed. Right. So they had the bass and the guitar the wrong way around, but we did it like that, even though we were both right-handed because Nirvana had done it. So at that point, we were like, we don't want a keyboard player. We don't want a second guitarist. We can do it to you yep. and me. All we need is a drum. We're going to be a three-piece, basically in a fucking Nirvana tribute band. So at the start, um, we were very grungy. And then by the time we got Guy on board with another drummer in between called Mark, which who was on that pilot EP you talk about, mm-hmm. you can hear on that pilot EP, that's sort of the turning point between the grungy version of us and the more post-hardcore. You're finding your sound. Yeah. Uh, yeah and so yeah if the sound developed it sort of developed between those three drummers we when we got jason we were very grungy very um nirvana tribute bandy playing a lot of green day covers and then by the time guy joined the band by way of mark in between he was very important piece of the puzzle we were full-on post-hardcore but we would still dip back into stuff like freddy krueger and deadly lethal and uh what's the other one keep it to yourself very grungy keep it to yourself we still liked to do that when we would remember, it would even be as simple as we would put on like a neutral and be like, oh my God, this record's great. I haven't listened to this three years. And then the next day we'd have Keep It To Yourself or something. Um, so we still like to dip into that. And I, I, we all wish we would have done more of that. But the scene that we were surrounded by with people like Ocean Size and Biffy and Suchapero and Milo and Million Dead, that was the post-hardcore explosion, wasn't it? Yeah. So we, we tended towards post-hardcore. 
I talk yeah. so much, buddy. Does that answer your question at all? Yes, of course, mate. Okay, thank God. I'm loving it. Okay. Hanging on your every word, man. <laughs> it's fucking great. Okay. It's so interesting to just hear, like, like how it all develops and stuff like that. A long, obviously a long I've known time. Who Ruben are for, you know, from what sounds like the when you st- actually found your sound. Yeah. But, there, you know, there was 10 of... years before that, 10 years of bands mm. be- before getting to even that point. Uh, which is why I'm sort of, you know, we're not selling anything here, but <laughs> that's mm. sort of why I'm uh, very excited about um, we're doing the reissue of the um, the first EP, the, the the pilot vinyl, right? Because we found, believe it or not, uh, we found five extra tracks that I'd forgotten that that original lineup of the band had made. Because I always like bands, you know, like my favorite bands always go through lineup changes. Usually the fucking drummer, you know, you hear those recordings <laughs> that the Beatles made with uh, Pete Best. They're they're fascinating. It's not quite the Beatles. Yeah. And, you know, I love Bleach with Chad. And if you've mm-hmm. heard the, you know, the Nevermind sessions that they did with Chad playing the Nevermind tracks, it's mind-blowing, man. And and so we always... <laughs> I think there was even idea. I don't know if Mark always knew that he wasn't going to be the main drummer of the band. But but if he was going to leave, he would get to be like the Chad Channing of Ruben, right? So right. so I find that fascinating. And me as a, as a fan of other bands, if I was a Ruben fan... Which I am, really. I think they're cool. <laughs> I would be fascinated by that early period where they had a different drama, you know, and it changes the sound. And so what I mean to say is we made that five-track EP with our original drummer, um, and that was all. And then I found in the loft, I found a fucking dat tape of five more tracks we did just before he left that I'd fucking forgotten about. Amazing. So we've put them on the B-side. So now what you have is you have a whole record, basically, an album. Of, That's incredible. Of sort of that first version of the band, because there's yeah. so much before Race Car. Race Car really isn't the start, and and so to put another record on the rack and say actually this tells a little bit more of the story, is um is very exciting to me. about first gigs earlier didn't you say your first gig was well my was first that gig with sheer power yeah it was my parents barbecue yeah yeah pretty triumphant yeah. got paid in sausages <laughs> yeah I've, uh, I've, I've done uh, a lot of gigs where i've paid been paid a lot less than that <laughs> oh, shit yeah okay now what was the first like venue gig that you done we managed to get booked for um a sort of it was called bertie's bisley bash <laughs> And it was like family day. It was basically like a school fate, like a like a village fate, right? I love a bit of bric-a-brac. Bric-a-brac and the croc, all the stuff. But sometimes they had like bands, which is why I'm so excited. I the We played a gig that was a bit like that. It was like a town fair and a bunch of mm-hmm. local bands got to play. And there wasn't really like a vetting process. It was just like, have you got a drum kit? You can play. And we played that. And one of the other bands on the bill, a band called Rascal, who were a real band that played in venues... We were we were pretty good because we spent a lot of time rehearsing. This was me and John and Jason, and um, they were like, "Listen, guys, you were great." And this fucking never happens. They were like, "You were great. We've got a gig next week at the Tumble Down Dick in Farmrose, the pub. Um, do you want to come and like play with us?" And like, in what universe does that happen? Because now, yeah, you've got like agents, you've got a promoter, you've got to at least tell the venue. You can't just bring some band you found to the show. But I think maybe they'd put it on themselves. And it was that maybe they'd hired it out and they were like, do you want to kind of play like 
I owe those guys so much because we knew about the tumbledown dick and we were still like 15 and we had no hope of getting we didn't we had no idea how to break onto the circuit how we could get a gig in a pub they wouldn't let us in the pub and all of a sudden these guys just because they liked us just said they were much older than us they said come to our gig and we're like wow and we had a gig in a venue with a pa you know underneath a real band and we kicked their asses <laughs> we kicked their asses they were Amazing. so great you blew them off the stage but we blew and we didn't want to and we were devastated and they were so gutted afterwards they wouldn't talk to us not because they were that's when you know you've had a good gig right but we we were more <laughs> we were mortified because they sort of slunk off stage and and we're like yeah good gig and then just sort of fuck and talk to us and we we're like oh man what happened and then their manager came and was like guys you blew them off stage, man. You made them look bad. <laughs> we were like, oh, no, because they, we worshipped them. Uh, and then they came around and they were such cool guys. But you can't blame them for being a bit miffed if these hot dicks came on stage and just floored them. <laughs> so, but that was our first gig. And those guys in Rascal, God, I love you so much because they gave us that first opportunity. And then after that, it was all systems go. The fucking owner of the pub was like, shit, do you want to come back next week? And then like people started coming. And then other people were like, oh, do you want to play this venue? All from that one we couldn't get Fucking in. Fucking great. And then when this one band just held open the door for us, sort of snuck us in the yeah. back, it was all systems go. That was an amazing night. And then, I mean, get and get, once we'd got those gigs on the, sort of the local level, then it was how to crack London. And that was a whole yeah. another problem. Yeah. And I, I can't really remember how we did that as well. Several abortive attempts. On that note, what's the worst gig you think you've ever done? So many. <laughs> I well, you can you can say more than one if you like. There's there. I'll, I'll try and be real quick with them. There, one one gig, the gig that actually paid for the pilot EP to be produced. I keep bringing this back to the pilot EP like I've got something to sell. Sell away. <laughs> um, it's just because it all means something. It, it just it means something to me, you know. Um, we played a battle of the bands um, when when Mark was in the band, the, the pilot drummer, and we got there and the audience were they were children they were like 10 to 12 so we were like 16 17 and the audience were 10 to 12 because it was their like rec group that we'd overtaken and i don't know how this battle of the bands had been arranged or why they weren't more like actual teenagers there we just played this show in front of these kids who just i think the tuck shop was even open at the other end of the hall (laughs) and no one apart from like 30 like actual children and I tripped over the monitor, which was just on the floor, and my guitar <laughs> fell off. And instead of singing the rest of the song, I just repeated the phrase, I am the captain, again and again and again into the microphone until John and Mark stopped playing. But we won. <laughs> just for, for pure comedy. Well, you won. For pure comedy purposes, we won the Battle of the Bands. We used the money to pay for pilots. So that was bad, but also had a silver lining. We, we had a whole bad tour with some 41 that... I think oh, the last wow. one of the last tours that Ruben did, a big fucking nail in that coffin, was a tour with Sum Forty One, where their crowd hated us. They hated us, and Sum Forty. It was even. It wasn't Sum Forty One in their prime. It was a long time since Fat Lip, you know. And so they were right. sort of coming down, and they were just the biggest dicks. I don't give a shit about um, calling them out. Apart from Dave, Dave was a sweetheart, the guitarist, but mm-hmm. the like. Uh, and I think I, no Dave wasn't in the band by that point Dave had left I met Dave uh, previously at the Karanga Wars and he was a cool guy so when I thought oh we're going on a tour with Sum 41 I was like great hang out with Dave no they kicked him out or he left the only one that we spoke to was Cohen the bass player 
and he was okay he's sort of very quiet the drummer and the guitarist Derek they're such dicks they just ignored us the whole time and and that we were used to going on tour with bands and, and coming back you know as part of the family you know lifelong friends yeah and, yeah you know I, I make a real effort to stay in touch with people I've toured with you know going back 20 years it matters to me I hate what you come back off tour you spend like four weeks going around the country with someone what and then you never speak to them again that's fucking bullshit i hate that and yeah but we never need we never even got to speak to these guys they gave less than a shit about us and because of that that fed through to their audience you can tell if you're a follower of a band if your band that you've been to see it's it, being a support act is a hard gig anyway sometimes and if if your main band don't like hype them up and be like, oh, make sure you turn up early. These guys are great. They're really good buddies, you know, like I always do. Then the audience aren't going to give a shit, man. And they were like actively hostile to us. And God, it was bad. Every night was bad. But particularly in Manchester, they were just so aggressive to us. And they were, <clears throat> I tell this story so often. <laughs> they were shouting, shit, shit shit at us just like this arena full of people and i grabbed hold of the mic and i said look for every time you can shout the word shit at us we will add a song to our set and they shut the <laughs> fuck up <laughs> that's brilliant and we played, that's fucking we played the genius. rest of the show in basically silence and got the fuck out but i blame i don't blame the crowd i blame squarely some 41 you are responsible for how your audience act they take their lead from you and and so that was maybe the worst, yeah. Because we didn't even get a prize money at the end of that. <laughs> we split up. Oh, mate. <laughs> Fucking hell. Can you remember anything? I just want to talk about something. Is it true you worked and fi- and helped finance your first album by working in a chip shop? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was a big part of the band legend. We were We were the band that had other jobs as opposed to all those other bands that have, but no one talked about their part-time jobs so mm. so particularly early on all the press would pick up on the fact that yeah i worked in a chip shop guy worked in debenhams john was stacking shelves at waitrose and that's how we paid for our record yeah and people yeah. was like wow this get this guys there's a band that have to work part-time jobs what a bizarre phenomenon and the truth was that every band did that but no one was um, yeah absolutely everyone was you too ashamed a... to talk about it we were like Fuck yeah you're it. one this of the is, only guys being completely open about it yeah it wasn't a glamorous look we had no glamour <laughs> <laughs> but that that sort of grit and determination that that just adds so much more yeah i hope to so a, to a band yeah. you know what i mean yeah people just aren't plucked from obscurity and just of course going, they're not here's a platform fucking go for it yeah i always wanted to see you know behind the closed door i always wanted to see and uh, to bring it back to my illustration as well i have a sort of an illustration style i work with pencil on paper and then i digitize it i leave i leave the rough lines in i never rub them out i, I you know you can see my very first if i a circle for a head you can still see mm-hmm. that in the finished piece because i like to see how we got there I like to, you know, show your working. Yeah. And it's the same with the the band and music. I leave the rough notes in, you know? I, yeah. I like it to sound like a tangible thing that other people, crucially, that other people could achieve. When did you realise that you were a musician? Oh, <clears throat> only 
only a couple of years ago. Yeah. Because because before then, I always had another job. Either um, all through the band, I was still in the chip shop. The very last year, I got a job at a design agency in London. So I always had another job because it never paid enough to make a living. And it was only, and I had that same design job up until maybe 2018 when the company folded. And, and so I got made redundant and I was like, oh, <laughs> and I thought, shit, what am I going to do? And then gradually it got to like, you know, a year, two years. Uh, and I still was sort of bubbling along and paying the mortgage and I managed to do it without really finding another job. Then I was like, oh shit, I must be a musician. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because that's that's what I do now. So it was only very recently, because I always used to have a thing where I distrusted musicians. There was people that played music, and then there's musicians, and musicians would always talk to you about fucking, you know, scales and notes and bullshit like this, and I just fall asleep. Whereas the people that I liked were completely, you know, unschooled, you know, punk bands who just picked it up and were like, "Bang, that makes a good sound." So I was always wary of being a musician. I wanted to be someone that played music. Um, but these days, yeah, I would say that unfortunately en enough has rubbed off on me that I'm probably a musician. A couple with the fact that, you know, I earn my living from it. But it's it, when people ask you, I mean, God, it's the worst when people ask you what you do because you never know how to answer that. Because when you say I'm a musician, they instantly assume you're a fucking cellist in an, in a, an orchestra. No one can conceive that you can make a living um, from you know, pop music or rock and roll. Or if you do, they must have heard of you because there's like Adele and U2 and then no one below that. You know what I mean? You you can't be a musician because I haven't heard of you. And like, well, guess yeah. what? There's a yeah. whole strata of musical acts making a living out of it without being uh, in the top 100%. Um, and, but also then if you say I'm an artist, they think you mean... Like a painter people's views of, of creative options are so narrow that it's almost impossible to have a conversation with someone who isn't at least in that sphere so i just say i'm a builder i just say yeah <laughs> <laughs> people know what that is do you remember a point uh, in your journey where you realized that you were doing it so for instance was there ever a gig where you were playing to like a large audience and you just had that sort of moment of like Look where I am. I've done it. No, never. Because... No? No, because we always had to... Um, a lot of people say that. We always had to drive home to open up the chip shop at 8 o'clock in the morning the next time. I, I One gig, we played in Glasgow to, like, you know, an audience of a couple of thousand. We had to drive through the night because my shift started at 10 a.m. Yeah. At the chip shop. So... Wow. I never thought this is my thing. As far as I was concerned, being a chippy was my thing. And this... And I was wasting my time losing sleep sacrifice and sleep so no i never thought oh wow i'm doing it i always thought shit i gotta fucking scrub that floor tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> that's what the experience was like yeah did that light the fire inside you more though do you think buddy if anything it uh, blew it out yeah you know burning the candle at both ends that's that's one of the many things that, that did for us that certainly did for that band yeah because we were living double lives uh you know almost it was almost like you know, the hours we should have been sleeping, we were rocking. And in, in, in our daytime lives, we went into offices or, or shops or whatever. Uh, no, it was the opposite. It, it, it killed us, really. Uh, but then, you know, I'm fine with that. You know, I, although it was a bummer at the time and I was exhausted and heartbroken. But um, 
I can't complain about the way it went. That's a great answer. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Podcast. All right, man. Well, I've got like the last four questions are kind of non-related in a way. Sure. The first one is, and I think you'll like this, yeah. due to our conversation earlier. If you were a wrestler, yes, or a fighter of any form, yeah, what would your entrance music be? Oh my fucking god! I have thought about this so much over the years, and I still can't settle on one. Uh, all I can hear is uh, the Hulk Hogan's music, which I know I can't have because someone has already got it. Ah, uh, <laughs> what? Uh, maybe do you know That's what? Maybe such a big song what a tune it's such a good tune i might even like repurpose one of my own songs maybe instead of talk nice. hard i'd, I'd re-record it as hit hard and then we play that booming out as nice. a hit hard you know and i'd sing all the lyrics i'm That's gonna good. bruise your noggin you know <laughs> who knows maybe i'll do a wrestling remix just for you i just put some new vocals on so that oh, mate. i think that would be cool I'd be honored yeah <laughs> that's right that's a good choice and you know you get to promote yourself a bit as well yes and the prs mm. yeah exactly all right, man. This is where I think I know. I think I know the answer to this. Okay, hit me. What is the greatest TV theme tune of all time? It's Nightmare. The theme tune to Nightmare. Okay, I, that is not what I thought you were going to say. I mean, Doc, the Doc Two theme tune. Don't get me wrong; it's very good. But I reckon, do It's fucking amazing. Yeah, Nightmare. Fucking loved Nightmare. I come at you sideways with that one. You did. You did. You done me. What a um, mate! What a show that what a was. Show. We could do a whole podcast about nightmare. I'm a night- <laughs> I'm a nightmare freak, man. I got the books and shit. I wonder if there is one. Of course there I is. I mean, I mean, we've like um, you know, obviously you do like the Crystal Maze experiences and that now. Why they've got to do a nightmare one at some point? You know, that's what, I mean? what I, I did. I went to see Nightmare Live once, which was very cool. It was just for one team. It was like an immersive theater thing, but there were a team of like not performers that were guided through it by um, someone playing Treyguard, someone playing Lord Fear. It was fucking hilarious. It was sort of a mix between a show and and someone really playing Nightmare. But that was great. But you're right, there is a... The thing is, you basically just put a bucket on your head and stand in a huge green room. Yeah. <laughs> but I would love <laughs> to do it. someone just pretending to be medieval. Exa- exactly, right. Don't pick up that barrel. I- I'd love to do it, yeah. <laughs> Did you go and watch that right recently or like when it was on back in the day? No, it was a few years ago at like a theatre group of, you know, people oh, our age wow. that love Nightmare were like, hey, let's do it live. And it was just really funny. And I wish yeah. they'd uh, do it again. It's great. Oh, mate, that'd be great. Mm. I'd love that. All right, man. What song would you like played at your funeral? Eric Prids's Call On Me. <laughs> and, mate, you did not even hesitate for one second. No, because second, I know, then. because I've written a whole list. There's got to be a statue. And my <laughs> wife has got to make a huge speech about what a great lover I was. And then they've got to play... Eric Prids's call on me at like ear bloodening volume until like people leave you know until they're like fuck no this noise no one's gonna wanna leave if that's playing you reckon they're staying yeah it'd be great it's, if it's on a loop no one's going nowhere yeah now that's the one I've got like written down yeah in the will yeah what a, is that genuine what a tra- yeah, for 100% yeah what a track I do believe you because yeah. before I'd even finished my sentence you were just like Eric Pritz yeah I don't take chances man <laughs> Eric Pritz yeah because it's you know I know I'm going to die. It's debatable whether or not I'll become a WF wrestling champion. So I had to figure that one out. <laughs> hey, got a dream. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
I got the fucking <laughs> shoulder pads. I could do it. Uh, that's a pretty gnarly dressing gown you got on going on there this as was, well. This was a gift from, um, you know, that band Baby Shambles. I know the... Of course, yeah. The guys from Baby Shambles. They, I think they got given this by uh, some tailor in Japan or in Paris. Yeah. The, the, the bass player is a good friend of mine. He gave me his. Oh, no, it's him that gave that to you? It was, yeah. He's a lovely Amazing. guy. Amazing. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> no, I can't turn the heating on. Yeah. <laughs> got to layer up. All right, man. Final question. Here we go. What advice would you give to a young Jamie Lemon? Uh, I'd say um, go running and don't eat so much processed food. (laughs) 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 Because everything else, everything else I did right, and I'm pleased with where I got to, but it took me a long time. I was a fat kid for a long time, and it was only very recently that I got my uh, physical health in check. And it's so simple, and like I was so depressed through most of my teenagehood and, and early adulthood and childhood, because I was always, you know, a little bit chubby. I had a bit of weight on me, and I just had no idea about nutrition and no idea about exercise. And I hated sport, and I loved sugar, <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> and so that genuinely, I know that's not what you, you were looking for, like be true. But genuinely, if I could go back in time and tell myself one thing, I'd be like, buddy just run for 20 minutes three times a week and maybe don't have three bowls of cereal every morning yeah you know it's simple stuff and then you won't be like a chubby shit for like 30 fucking years uh, but you know do you know what i loved about your answer yeah <laughs> is you said because i got everything else right oh, no. that was well, that was fucking awesome <laughs> well i'm i'm very happy now so that means that you know i, I must have yeah. got everything else right sure i made loads of huge mistakes and i treated people bad when i was growing up because i didn't know any better but um you know i think that all takes us to a place i think generally speaking i got all the other stuff right career-wise uh personally but just yeah should have started exercising earlier <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably my favourite answer to that question so far this season. Oh, good, because a lot a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I'd say relax and don't think too much and blah blah blah." But the fact you just said, "I got everything else right," <laughs> I was I was like, "Yeah," I was like, "Oh a, man, like a rocky speech." I sound so uh, cocky, don't I? I mean, no, obviously no, the, the truth is shades of grey. You're but... obviously happy to wear, like, you're obviously happy with like your journey and where you are now, yeah. and, and and what everything that you've done to get there. So yeah. and that's only that's it's not cocky at all. It's positive. Yeah, I just it's, wish it's, I could have worn fantastic. some thinner trousers. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Spent years looking in mirrors, going, "Oh, this doesn't really suit me." Would have been great if everything suited me. Oh, mate, we've all been there. Yeah, right. We've all been there. What's up with those bad boy suits you're wearing these days? Are they tailor-made? No, they're from eBay. I get them from eBay. Really, Yeah, great. like proper vintage, because they look very... Uh, yeah, they're new. They're new. They're, 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 they're cheap they really? as shit. It's the way you wear them, buddy. It's the way you wear them. There you go, mate. You know what? I went through. I went to town the other day, and I was wearing a, a hat, uh, like a straw hat. <laughs> and this lady shouted out, That's a great hat! You know, and it was a compliment, but I nearly said, "Hey, the hat is actually very ordinary. It's the way I wear it." Uh, <laughs> and then you could have like tipped it. I could have just you go, "Oh, what the fuck is going on with the haircut?" But yeah, <laughs> so it's not it's not the closest the way you wear me. Ah, uh, mate, can't doubt that. Yeah, I mean, I've got tracksuit bottoms and a Brutus Barber beefcake t-shirt. I'm gonna on, have so that off here. It's great. I just look like 
Mate, I'll send you one. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll, I'll send you one. I love it. Yeah? Yeah, we'll yeah. swap it. I'll, get, I'll send you a copy of that um, vinyl, the EP, when it comes out. Okay, we'll do a trade. Yeah, lovely. you got a deal. I'm serious. Great. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. All right, dude, thank you so much for doing this, man. You're welcome. Really, really, really appreciate it. You're every bit of an amazing guest that I thought you'd be. <laughs> well, I hope so, pal. I'm going to go and boil a load of rice and eat loads of dinner now, but it was a, a pleasure yeah, to speak a, to you. Eat a rice sandwich. I'm going to turn this off so we... And there you go. What can you say about that? Well, I'll tell you what you can say about that. Firstly, I stopped recording before I said goodbye. I said goodbye to him personally on the Zoom, but uh, you guys didn't hear the... It's not very professional, the whole out bit, so apologies for that. But, man, if you didn't already love Jamie Lemon, you must love him now. What a wonderful human being. Such a lovely guy, so kind-hearted, such a good laugh. What a brilliant guy, man. I absolutely, absolutely love that episode. And, yeah, I mean... (laughs) What more can I say? If you don't love Jamie, you've got no heart. But I'm sure you do. Have a heart and love him. Anyway, during that episode, you would have heard tracks from his brand new EP, I Know You Know I Know, which is the predecessor to his album, The Atheist, which you would have also heard tracks from, which came out late last year, which is an amazing album. And I slid in my favourite Jamie Lemon track, Waterloo Teeth. On top of that, you have heard a really old Ruben track from their pilot EP that they've re-released called Alpha Signal 7, which is now available to buy on vinyl. On top of that, Jamie's entire back catalogue is available on all streaming platforms. It's absolutely brilliant. And if you're brand new to Jamie or you only know Jamie for his solo career, also go and check out Ruben. What a band, man. What a band. Such a shame they had to break up, but, you know, these things happen. They are such a fantastic band and I, I, I'm, a, I'm a massive advocate for that band, so go check them out. I just think Jamie in general, his songwriting style, his lyrics and mostly his voice. He's got such a beautiful voice and uh, he's a fucking dude. So go and check it out. And more importantly, if you're listening before Friday, Jamie is playing at Dingwalls in Camden Town and I'm going to be there probably with my shirt off down the front swinging it around so if you're going to the gig and you're hearing this pre-gig come and find me let's have a beer i'll buy you a beer or maybe you'll buy me a beer we'll do rounds whatever you want but i'm gonna be down dingles you should be down dingles too unless of course you don't live in london he's currently on tour so go on his website and find out where he's playing get your ass down there the guy's fantastic And that's about it for another episode of the Band Before the Band Before podcast. Again, I can't thank you all enough for listening. It means the world for me. Please, it means the world for me. It means the world to me. You know what I mean. If you want to get in touch with us, hit us up at tbbtbbpodcast at gmail.com. If you've got some band stories that you'd like to share or you've got some thoughts on the show, hit me up, man. I'd love to hear them. Unless they're horrible. Actually, especially if they're horrible, I actually quite enjoy that. If you could be asked, like and subscribe. I'm still unsure what that really does, but it must do something because everyone tells you to do it. And uh, yeah, thank you all again for all these five-star reviews we keep getting. I love it. I've never got a good review for anything. Anyway, thank you again so much for listening to the Band Before the Band Before podcast. I've been me, you've been you, you're fantastic, and I'm just a piece of... 
meet. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. Please check out the rest of our back catalogue. I hope you won't be disappointed. I'll see you all at the next one, I hope. Take care of each other. Bye.